Hi everyone, this is Greg and I'm here with Dave and Adam and this is the Blue Mage Podcast. Adam just waved in case you didn't <laughs> all see that. Yep. Cue the theme music! Since no one knows anything about us, because this is our first time doing a podcast that I'm aware of, Adam, introduce yourself. Tell me something interesting about yourself. Hi, I'm Adam. I like bugs. Dave? Hi, I'm Dave. Uh, currently, I'm working as an archaeologist, uh, but I'm not working as one today because it is a rain day. And I'm Greg, and I got a job as a children's librarian because I can do funny voices and I do have my degree in librarianship. So we are doing a podcast about Mage the Awakening, also known as Blue Mage because of the wonderful blue cover on the book. So why do a podcast about Mage the Awakening? Over the last year or so I've seen a fair amount of love for Mage the Ascension, Purple Mage, uh, in the forms of podcasts. By the way, if you haven't seen Mage the Podcast yet, download it, listen to it, it's awesome. As well as actual plays, but I haven't seen a lot of things about Mage the Awakening. So I figured I'd get one of my shyest friends and one of my not-so-shy friends, both of whom know a lot more about Mage than I do, and we do a podcast together. Just a quick note, this game is going to be talked about from a Canadian perspective. Sorry. So, if no one has heard of Mage, Adam, how would you describe it? Well, frankly, I would call it Magic the Gathering in the real world with slightly less backstabbing. My idea is this. Imagine you had the power to do almost literally anything, and then you find out that there are other people who can do almost literally anything, and they want you on their team to control magic. What do you do? You know, I just realized at no point have you said so far that this is a role-playing game. A game where you, like, actually sit down around a table with a book and roll dice to determine what happens. So I feel like that should be mentioned. Yes. Uh, other than that, I usually describe it as a game of uh, Harry Potter uh, if they were all grown up and living in, you know, the modern world. Cool. So, what is the Mage The Awakening game all about? Well, you just heard our elevator pitches, and it's all about that. But the tagline of this game is that it is a storytelling game of modern sorcery. That's so, a lot to live up to. Mm -hmm. So you have the ability to enforce your will upon the world. You Literally using just your will. You can throw fireballs, you can fly, turn invisible. And you do that in the here and now. I feel like I have to almost compare it to the previous edition of Mage, because there, there were a lot of changes. <clears throat> Excuse me, from a, a villain perspective especially, mm -hmm. which I think we're going to get a little bit more into later. Uh, but the, the thing is, is that previously, in the previous edition of Mage, the idea was that you were... It was like a war for the very nature of reality. 
like you were one side was trying to make the world one way and the other side was trying to make the world another way and you were one of those sides and that changed and mm -hmm. they they changed that a lot largely i think due to 9/11 which really uh changed the national consciousness a lot in the united states so now the players in the original one the players were more like terrorists fighting against like a big monolithic like the man style organization yep. uh that's not the case anymore now the the sides are a little bit more even you you are basically the keepers of an ancient tradition but not one that, that's uh losing um you're like yeah you want to even keel with the, the bad yes guy. there's definitely a swing in whether your side which is basically trying to keep alive humanity's magic is winning and the other side which is like magic needs to be hoarded for the precious few i.e us and fuck the rest of humanity yeah yeah also uh one, the one thing that changed uh, also is that it, it, they they constantly in the previous edition made it seem like you could completely change the world if you got enough people to believe that magic works your way. Yes. That that kind of got done away with in this edition. Yeah, where you know. now it's it's um you're you're trying to fight a war against your enemy, but you're not actually trying to change the universe in a substantial way the way it used to go. <laughs> yeah, that's not one of the main thrusts. Basically they don't they don't have consensual reality anymore. In, right. In Purple Mage, consensual reality was if enough people believe it, it's true. Which frankly I believe is absolutely horrible and I did not like it at all. <laughs> uh, in Blue Mage, there is a higher truth. There is knowledge coming from a realm of pure forms like Plato coming down into our world and you have the ability to enforce that. But it's but it doesn't matter how many people believe that is or is not true. It is what it is. And one of the things I like about this game, which they did in the Purple Mage as well as this, is that you do that through the use of various occult symbols, but you can also do it through modern symbols. Yes. A Nike swish can have just as much power as a magic wand. Exactly. It all depends on, this is an old world term, the paradigm of magic that you're using. Even though all mages do tend to share the same paradigm of how magic comes in, how you manipulate and use that magic helps define what the characters are and what they do. Mm -hmm. And that is, I think, part of a legacy from uh, oh. Ascension. Oh, definitely. Now, there is one important question you forgot to ask earlier, Greg. I know. What are we drinking? <laughs> Adam, what are you drinking? I'm drinking an ice wine I've had in my fridge for a year, and it's still delicious. What, what brand of ice wine is that for the viewers at home? Don't know. Don't care. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I was planning on drinking a rum and coke, but um, first off, the rum ran out, so there is no rum here. And second off, I finished off my drink before we started recording, but I was drinking a cherry Pepsi. Dave, why is the rum gone? I wish I knew. We are recording this on Halloween, so happy Halloween everyone. I am having mead, which you can't get very often where we live. I've got two bottles, I am starting the first, and it's going to last me for at least a month. Now I'm curious yeah. why you feel mead is the spirit of Halloween, so to speak. It's made from honey. Right. It, therefore it is the best. <laughs> okay. It's the, it has both a trick and a treat. Uh, the treat is go. the sweetness. The trick is... The hangover later. Yeah. <laughs> All right, back to mage. <laughs> back to mage. So there is a default theme and mood in Mage, the Awakening. And it is, if I'm just flipping through going to the, the book. book. I am going to the book. I am, as I mentioned, the librarian. I go to the book. The mood is ancient mystery. Does it actually say that right out of the book? 
Yeah, it says right out of the book, Ancient Mystery, oh. on page 16. Yeah, there we go. And mostly because one of the, the major backstory in the first mage book, the main book that first came out, was that Atlantis is the source of occult magic and occult items. So ancient, the ancient mystery in the, a lot of this is discovering what Atlantis actually was, why and how it came to be the birthplace of magic, and why whenever anyone finds relics and old uh, buildings from Atlantis, you can never actually tell what time period it's from. Literally, you look at it and it's just like it was two thousand years. It was two thousand year olds three seconds ago, mm -hmm. and it's really confusing. It is, but. It worked, because it means that you can have a dungeon dive in the storyteller system. Yep. Which is something that I've never seen in the other storytelling games. Well, not the two that came before this. Yeah, fair. What, what I find interesting about this is that, on one hand, the book seems to suggest that Atlantis, they're saying, well, it might be a metaphor, you know, there was no actual island that sank beneath the waves. And on the other hand, they're handing you crap that actually came from Atlantis, so you can't completely discount the possibility that, you know, it existed. One thing I personally would like to emphasize is that if you decide not to go with the Atlantis metaphor, there is actually support for that later on in the, in the game line. It's just really hard to not be, have it forced on you from the main book. Um, they do make a point to say that, uh, even in the original stories, that it wasn't actually Atlantis. I'm finger... Yeah, finger quoting. Quoting there. It's just that that's the name that modern society knows it best as. And by it, modern society, we're definitely talking North American and uh, Western Europe. Yeah. So it could be East. It could be Shangri-La. It could be Tiernanog. The Lost yeah. Continent of Mew. The Lost Continent of Mew. All of these are... Just as apt as, as a description as Atlantis is, but the book defaults to using the term Atlantis. We probably will as well for now. Yeah. <laughs> Anything else about the the mood? Uh, actually, there was one other thing. Um, occult mystery is the main theme, and I find I have found because I've I've ran this game for uh, a long time that unlike other games, like for example, Vampire and Werewolf, which are related products to this one, you can feel free to almost shoehorn in all kinds of weird supernatural things. And the book kind of like actually uh, makes this more possible than the other systems. For example, at the back, they have a whole section where they talk about cryptids, which are to say supernatural monsters. So if you yeah. want to throw in like a Mothman or a Sasquatch or stuff like that there, that's completely supported by the book. And consequently, if you have like one of those guys show up, it's not as out of place as it might be in a uh, vampire game. I, I remember I, I once I wrote up some stats for those creatures from the, the movie The Mimic. Oh. The, the giant bugs that like <laughs> yeah. looked like people and yes. like under bad light, and then they would just grab dudes and fly off with them. And that's that was a mystery, right? And, mm -hmm. they, and even though they weren't fighting wizards that week, suddenly the players found themselves embroiled in this cult mystery of sorts. And yeah, th that that's just perfectly in theme. And that's going to be that's going to come up a lot, especially in most a lot of people's play experiences. Everything is an investigative mystery. Because you're a mage, and because you have magic powers, you have the ability to know things other people don't. So everything, almost everything, comes down to, if it's not politics, it's investigating. Yeah, actually, literally, one of the, the most basic level powers is called the practice of knowing, yes. which is, when you cast this spell, you just know the answer to the specific question you're asking. Yes. And the storyteller is encouraged to give 
a lot of information. In fact, to be overly generous with information. Yeah. This way you can have your players come up with crazy conspiracy theories and you don't have to do as much work as this GM because they've already made the story for you. (laughs) One small thing to add about that, the storyteller is to give facts. Yes. So you give the facts, the players give the interpretation. Give the interpretation. And they can be dead wrong. Yes, okay. they can. And sometimes them being dead wrong is a lot more fun than being them being absolutely right. Yeah, that's true. So the theme of the book, according to the book on page 15, is power corrupts. I like how you're giving the page references. I'm <laughs> a librarian. <laughs> now, note, power corrupts. Not power corrupts absolutely, No, but power corrupts. What do you all think? Well, this one's dead easy. If you had the ability to turn invisible, would you not abuse it? If you have the ability to read people's minds, would you not abuse it? I figure right now you might just say, no, I'm a more moral person. And you're, you might be right. I can't answer for you. I know I would definitely be tempted to use some of the abilities that mages are granted. Even some of like, the really small basic ones. Like, there's an ability under, like with fate match, you'd be like, where the hell did I leave my keys? I would use that one constantly. Mm-hmm. I, I keep saying if, if I was a, a mage who had access to space magic where you can teleport things around, I would be so fat because I would never use my legs again. Right? <laughs> that would be yeah. the point. It's like you literally just reach and there's everything you want. Right. Like you want to go backstage to a concert? You're there. One, one of the things I find interesting about this part of it, the whole uh, power corrupts, is that they actually made a big deal of the fact that there's something in here called hubris, which, uh, as you know, is sort of overweening pride, which mm-hmm. is, is a big theme in this game. The idea that mages, because they've got magic powers and can sense all these things, like we were just describing how easy it is for them to get answers, they've got this sense like, you know, they're better than everybody else, and like, why not do things if they can, because, you know, who knows better than they do, right? And that's a big part of the theme. One day you're turning invisible just to look over the shoulder of someone to get their pin number. Next thing you know, you have a laboratory somewhere and are reanimating the dead. And that has happened in a couple of games. Yeah, yes, short, it has. Shorter jump than you might think. <laughs> right. And they also have a system in here where the more corrupt you become, <clears throat> the more insane you become. That's a mechanical issue. We will talk about that more in a future podcast. But it is built right into the mechanics of the game where power corrupts and there are some very real consequences, especially yeah. if you're dealing with supernatural entities like spirits. And it's not so much you go crazy, it's just that you stop caring about what other people think. So, you know, you stop putting on makeup, you stop changing your clothes, you stop taking showers, you stop not fireballing people in the street when they annoy you. One, one thing I found interesting is that this is one aspect of the game that doesn't really seem to need a lot of mechanical reinforcement because we see a lot of it, like when we're playing with other players, how there's that instant temptation to use your powers to solve every single problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've seen guys who, like, uh, they, they just they cast spell after spell after spell after spell, and, and it gets to be almost such a second nature that there's things that they could do, and they could do it with, like, you know, just simple mundane means, and, you, and sometimes other people, even in character, have called them out on it and said, hey, you know, why are you using your magic to open that door? You've got the keys, right? Like, what's, what's going on here? And, and people just get addicted to the sensation of using these godlike powers. <laughs> And part of that addiction, I think, is the counterbalance of power corrupting. Because you don't necessarily realize, in character, or sometimes out, how deep down the path you're going. 
you just <laughs> until suddenly one day, as you said earlier, you're reanimating the dead or lighting someone on fire or you know removing their eyes because and you see absolutely nothing wrong with it. And you see absolutely nothing wrong with it. I feel like you don't even have to go that dark with it. Like the idea of some people just overusing their magic because, as you say, we're going to talk about this later. But the game's got like a uh, almost a punishment for people who uh, you know roll poorly. So if you're using your powers all the time, even for simple things like you're making ice cream out of your own house or something, sooner or later the magic's going to turn wrong on you and bad things are going to happen. Only be, and, and you could have just yeah. gone to the corner store and got that ice cream instead, but instead yeah. you were entirely the architect of your own downfall. And I guess that's where the corrupting absolutely comes in, just due to dumb luck of dice. <laughs> Part of it, yeah. Alright, uh, is that enough on the theme and the mood for now? Yeah, I feel, oh, like, yeah. I feel like we've explored that pretty deeply. <laughs> Alright, so the main conflict in the main book is set up between the five Atlantean orders, known as the Pentacle, and a group called the Seers of the Throne. And you're going to need a little bit of backstory for this. Go for it, Adam. Thank you. So, also as a side note, the Seers are also technically an Atlantean order. It, this is going to get weird, so bear with me for a moment. So, you have the Pentacle, which is composed of five orders. The main thrust of these orders is that magic belongs in the world. Magic belongs to humanity. Magic should not die out. We should do our best to preserve it and get as many people awakened or magic users as possible. The Seers, on the other hand, are like, magic is solely for us. The rest of humanity is a, is asleep or not mages because they are spiritually weak and they do not deserve magic and we are going to serve the hidden masters of the world that made the world the gnostic jail that it is today because we want funky powers that good enough no that's pretty good that's mm -hmm. um, uh i i feel like you, you hit the real what i feel is the core uh, element here was is the the series consider themselves the winners of an ancient war and the the Pentacle are sort of the inheritors of it, which makes it kind of weird because none of these guys were actually around when the war happened. Mm -hmm. They're just sort of the living in the, the tradition of, of what happened. Now, the Atlantean mages, or Perpentacle, it's widely acknowledged that their awakenings into their magical powers are more or less random. They, the, they don't get to pick who's going to awaken, they just do, and they have to sort of figure out where to slot them. Now, the book suggests that the seers might be able to choo pick and choose who awakens, but that could also be seer propaganda. The main book is definitely very light on the, uh, mm -hmm. the seers of the throne and what's true and what isn't. So yeah. uh, other than the fact that they tend to treat non-mages like, you know, absolute pawns and puppets. Yes. My personal interpretation was that all awakenings are random. Whether you join the pentacle or you join the seers, it's mostly a matter of who gets to you first and basically what you feel like. Then if you awaken, you're like, yeah, fuck the rest of humanity. I'm going to go seers. Uh, whereas if you awaken and you get training from the pentacle, you're probably going to join the pentacle. I always liked the uh, the opposite idea that the the seers of the throne and their the exarchs, the ancient masters who supposedly control things from the top, actually do get to decide who awakens and who doesn't. But the reasons that they're awakening specific people are completely uh, unknowable, uh... and it's usually the the exarchs say. This guy has to, we need this particular person, maybe because there's some sort of prophecy, maybe there isn't. But the answers as to who awakens and why are never filtered back down to the, the rank uh, and file guys. At least not in this book. They do answer a little bit of that in future books. There you go. Yeah. I'm not going to spoil it, because yeah. we will get to those future books, hopefully Later. in other podcasts. Yeah. So here's a question. Which group is the good guys? 
Neither. <laughs> yeah, I'd agree with that, but why? <laughs> okay, so first of all, you have to realize, even with the pentacle mazes, they want magic to exist, they want humanity to have magic, aside from one particular order, they don't particularly care how magic is used. They want magic to exist, but they don't care if you're throwing fireballs or healing the sick. Also, even though they want humanity to have magic, and they consider regular humans not just their pawns, they still look down on regular humans, and they will, are willing to use them as puppets and pawns in order to fight against the seers. It's, it's funny you should say that, because I've actually had, uh, in games, uh, players run into other seers of the throne and like say, how come you're trying to kill us? And use almost that exact argument where the seers are like, look what you guys actually use your powers for. What makes you think you're the good guys of this yeah. story? But you can also throw that right back on the seers, because they do the exact same thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I had one character who was talking to someone who was newly awakened. They had not chosen where they're going to join yet. And my character was basically a member of the Magic Secret Police. And he managed to convince her, purely accidentally, to join the Magic Secret Police because of all of this stuff that these mages do. I believe the words were, when other mages act like idiots with their powers, we take care of it. Yeah, I feel like we, we're going to do some sort of entire podcast on the Guardians of the Veil at some point. Oh, we will. It's planned. We're going to do one on the various orders and on the various paths. There we go. Are there any other major conflicts that you see in the main book? Uh, I feel like a lot of conflict is happening between just mage versus mage and order versus order. It's the part of the, a lot of it feeds back to that hubris thing where you've got two guys who each think that they're God's gift to the universe and, you know, unstoppable magical uh, machines. And when these guys have a disagreement, it's, you know, serious business. I remember there was one guy, I'm not going to call him out on this podcast, but that we had a guy who was like, oh man, I've got this power and this power and this power and I'm so awesome, nobody can stand against me. And I said, you know, you've got the same kind of starting character that everybody else does in this game. I don't know why he thinks his powers are so much better than everybody else's. I mean, the, the powers are very similar between groups, right? And But yeah. he, he immediately mm -hmm. got into his head that, like, he he, he was so drunk on the, the imaginary power that this yep. character had, it never occurred to him someone else had the same powers. Yeah. I thought that was weird. Also, one thing that newbie mages tend to forget is the great equalizer, the gun. <laughs> Even though you have great magical powers, you're still a human. Bullet through the head is still a bullet through the head. They're surprisingly effective against wizards in this game. <laughs> right? Surprisingly effective against wizards in most games. We have been throwing out a lot of terms. Um, yeah, Atlanteans, Seers of the Throne, Orders, Paths. Do we want to actually talk about what those are or save that as a teaser for the next Podcast. I feel like Atlanteans and Seers of the Throne have kind of described in yeah. basic terms. We'll describe the various orders in depth probably next podcast. However, one thing we should talk about is how the magic actually works. Because that might start to get a little bit confusing, especially when you start talking about everything else. Should I get into the theoretical end of this? Go. Alright, so basically the way magic works is that there are these five different realms, basically different dimensions, called the supernal realms. And this is where magic comes from. So each of those realms represents two different types of magic, as you were. And the idea is that this stuff is basically beamed down from the heavens to you every time you cast a spell of some sort. Now the trick is, is that at one point the Atlanteans believed the world that we live in, which is they call the Fallen World and the Supernal Realms, used to be one big, together, cohesive unit. 
And it, it was this whole fall of Atlantis thing which caused them to separate out. So supposedly back in the day, wizards were capable of amazing feats of magic. And nowadays what we're getting is a diminished version of it. Sort of like a, a fall of man perspective from the, the, the historical standpoint. So the idea is that because the supernal realms are not here, but somehow separated out by a distance from us, that lessens the magic coming to us. The, the distance between here and where they are, there's something called the abyss between here and there. And the abyss is bad. The abyss is basically a, a big void of stuff that should not exist in our universe, which is keeping us away from all the magic that's essentially our birthright. And anytime magic comes through the abyss to get to us, it gets kind of corrupted, or it, I, I've described it in the past, as it kind of goes through a, a dark filter. Mm -hmm. And what we get down is an adulterated, bad version of the magic, which is to say, often the magic you cut through someone works normally, but sometimes a little bit of the abyss sleep sips through into our world, and then suddenly you've got just all kinds of badness. <laughs> yeah. Imagine a flashlight shining through a lens, and a bug crawls, crawls across it. That bug is the abyss. Yeah, and now that bug is like running around downtown or something. Or at least a shadow of it is. Right. And the scary thing about the abyss is that there's a teeny tiny shard of it inside of every sleeper's soul, which is why mages are not supposed to do their magic in front of sleepers. They will, by their nature, either unravel that magic, which can be a good strategy in certain situations, or they will cause something called paradox to manifest, which basically warps the intention of the magic into something against what you wanted it to be. And highly undesirable. Is that, is that Soul Shard thing canonical? Yeah. Yes, unfortunately it's from the main book. Really? I don't yeah. know that. Huh. I'm not a huge fan of it, but that's okay. Hmm. There are ways around it. I actually like it. Fair. Like, that's fine. Yeah. I uh, don't. Part of it is that when you awaken, you help shake off that tiny bit of the abyss and you become, well, new. Yeah. Sort of. Because you are still human. And because of that, your perceptions and what you want to happen might not work quite as well. Again, that, there's that filter and there's that human pride that might twist the magic around incorrectly. Yep. Now, who wants to describe how magic works from an actual like game mechanic point of view? I will this time. So, magic is separated into ten arcana, ten secrets, ten spheres, ten different ways to modify the world. They, I'm going to list them. I might forget a few, but I'm going to list them just so I can get into the meat of how it actually works. So, the arcana, or spheres of magic, are death, fate, forces, life, matter, mind, prime, which I'll get into in a little bit because it's weird, space, spirit, and time. And basically, if you're a type of wizard that has access to that arcana, you can cast spells that allow you to know things, or modify, or create things covered by that term. Or destroy them. Or destroy them, that's true. So if you have death, you can learn things about a dead body, you can create, you could summon and talk to ghosts, you could create zombies. You can just touch something and have it rot away to nothing. Uh, with fate, it's the arcana of luck. It's literally about getting lucky hunches, finding a winning lottery ticket, protecting yourself through sheer, sheer coincidence, or hurting someone doing the same. 
it's not a spell in the main book, but one of the things that many people do is that fate has an attack spell where literally you cast it, and something unlucky happens, and it hurts the person. One of my personal favorites. You get to Looney Tune someone. It's wonderful. <laughs> uh, with forces, it's all about, well, forces, like electricity, or heat, or sound, or light. It's basically the greater and lesser forces of the universe. At higher levels, you can do things with gravity and radiation, and that can get really nasty. Life is life, specifically about living things. It affects things that are alive, not things that used to be alive. That's death. So it's where your healing and increasing your strength or dexterity come from. It's also about hurting someone, doing the same, and spreading diseases. Great stuff. Matter is about inanimate matter. This is a thing where you're dealing with dead wood or stone. It's about knowing where it came from, increasing its strength or changing its shape or destroying it, whatever you want. Mind is all about the mind. It's about the person's perceptions, about what they think. At lower levels, it gives you pretty much telepathy or know-how of someone's feeling. At higher levels, it allows you to create a new mind ex nihilo. You need something to store it in, but you have a new consciousness just right there for you. Prime is the weird one. It's the magic of magic. You can do some things by itself. You could turn pure magic into illusions or into constructs, so like a force sword or a shovel or whatever. But its main focus is about drawing in the energy of magic called mana in order to enhance your own spells or preventing other people from casting. Go back, going back to my magic metaphor, it's blue. It is a blue deck. It's all about saying, hey, you want to cast a spell? No. I'm casting a spell instead. Space is all about the distance between things and the connections between things. It's about teleporting, about finding out how, how something is connected to something else, like a key, being able to find which door it's connected to, where a person has been, and about shredding dimensions and making two things occupying different spaces occupy the same space, which causes them to explode into each other. It's a really good attack spell. Spirit is uh, one of the major, uh, is about the spirits of objects, is a very animistic approach to the world. Like, I could look at a chair and I could use spirit to talk to the spirit of the chair. I could, and could get that spirit to do things with the chair, or even just rip it out, put it into an item, and use that item to do chair-related things. I'm using chair as an example right now because I'm looking at one. It's the first thing that came into my mind. But I don't care. I've seen people do freaky things with a chair spirit. And finally, time, which is the magic of knowing exactly what time it is, slowing yourself up or speed or uh, sl slowing yourself down or speeding yourself up, about modifying when a spell is cast after you cast it. At higher levels, you can designate an area where time flows differently. You can basically make the hyperbolic time chamber, or throw someone into a fairy blade where one second pass for one year passes there, and a hundred years have passed elsewhere. Great way to get someone to off your back for you know a hundred years. Or one year, and then you forget about it, and then the enemy suddenly, accidentally, comes back. Surprise, players! Yeah, that too. That's kind of a jerk move. There's two ways of casting magic. Well, three. The first way is by rote. And mechanically, you have an attribute, such as dexterity, intelligence, resolve. A skill, such as... Marksmanship, driving, athletics... Brawl, medicine. And then you have your skill in one of the ten arcana that Adam just mentioned. Which is rated one to five. 
and you add all of these together. All of these are rated 1 to 5 for most characters. And you roll that many dice. These are d10s in this case, because this is a storyteller system. The number of 8s, 9s, and 10s are the successes you have, and you roll the 10s a second time. The more successes you have, usually the more powerful the spell you manage to throw off, or longer lasting, or some other modifier. Casting a rote spell is essentially like casting a spell that you, you know by heart. It's, mm-hmm. a, it's a spell that you've studied and you know carefully, and it's like, it's like you're reading out of a spell book. In fact, in this game, you get bonuses if you read the same spell out of a spell book yep. to, to cast a memorized spell like this. And it's also safer to do because there's less chance of the abyss coming down and warping your spells. Yeah. A rose spell has essentially been somewhat codified into the Fallen World's reality, so it's a little bit easier for it to pass into it. And then we have fast casting, which is very fun and very easy. All mages have this power stat called Gnosis, which is rated from 1 to 10. If you are a mage, you have Gnosis. And if you're going to cast a spell that you do not have a rote for, you just take your Gnosis, take your skill in whatever arcana, add them together, roll that number of dice, 8 and 10 are your successes. There is usually a smaller dice pool, so there's usually a greater chance for things to go wrong. But if you don't know the rote for something and you need an effect right away, that is the way to do it. Yeah. Now, with rote spells, a rote spell will, aside from having more successes making it more powerful, always act the same way each time. There's a little bit of real room, like if you're using a rote to alter sound, you can change the way you're altering sound, but all the rote does is alter sound. With improvisational casting, as long as it fits within the theme of the arcana, And the power level of the arcana you know at, you can do it. And then there's ritual casting. Which is basically taking a rote spell, casting it over a longer period of time to accumulate a lot more successes to make it a lot more powerful or longer lasting or some other effect. The And this took me a very long time to understand. Instead of just rolling once... You have to determine the number of successes you want to get beforehand and determine where you want to put those successes in terms of how strong the spell is, the number of targets, the size of the targets, the radius of the spell that you're going to be doing, the duration of the spell. And once you assign all of those target numbers, you roll until you get that many successes. And each roll can represent a minimum of three hours per roll for a starting character. And yeah, it can get a little insane. It's a really great way to get a lot of successes and cast a very, very powerful spell. Narratively, very quickly, but uh, in-game, it takes a lot longer to do. That basically all we got for the system of magic for now? Oh, the one last thing. Paradox. We've mentioned the word paradox a couple of times. To understand paradox, you have to know that there's two types of spells. There is a covert spell, which works with the flow of the universe. And there is a vulgar spell, which says, screw your rules, I'm throwing a fireball. Basically. This is a bit of a holdover from a previous system. I like to think of covert magic as something that you could potentially get away with if you were in a room full of, of witnesses as being a coincidence. Something that's not necessarily magical, but just seemed to be a happy fluke in your, your uh, 
killing your your favor. Whereas a vulgar spell is something where it's obvious that you've done something as magic. Except it's not quite like that in the book. Because there's a couple of spells which, in the purple edition, would be vulgar, mm -hmm. but in the blue edition are covert. It's true. And some of the things I was reading... Uh, something about the, the, the when the making of the book and uh, some of the things were done for game balance for example mm -hmm. healing magic uh, even though by their own rules it should be vulgar a lot of times it comes out as being covert because they just wanted to make it easier for people to heal other people yes so how does this relate mechanically to paradox well basically what you do is you take the number of dice you have for your gnosis and you roll them and I believe it is you're trying to roll over yeah, You're trying to roll your over your nose. As long as you roll higher than your gnosis score, you didn't invoke a paradox. If you roll under it, which is really easy if you have no if you roll under it, which is really hard if you have gnosis one, really easy if you have gnosis ten, you invoked a paradox. So interestingly, it's actually easier for more powerful wizards to invoke paradox yeah. than apprentices. And that goes back to the theme of abs of power corrupting. Mm. Yep. You know, as you get a, as a more powerful wizard, you have to be more selective with the spells you cast. Otherwise, he starts calling down abyssal entities and griblies that should not be. So each podcast, we want to do a review of one of the books that came out in this line. This book came out in 2005, so we have over 10 years of publishing history with Mage the Awakening. And you'll note that we're only doing Mage the Awakening first edition. There is a second edition that's come out recently, but it doesn't have a lot of other books published specifically for it. Though the fluff and some of the mechanics from the first edition are applicable to the second that being said, it seems like this whole podcast has been a review of this first edition book. Pretty much. Uh, there are some strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats that I do want to point out. The main strength of the first edition book is that everything you need to run a basic mage game is in this core rulebook. You get the default stereotypical setting and the default assumptions. You get a ton of magic, you get a ton of rules, you get all the rules you need, and if you want to run a Mage the Awakening game, and I hope you do run a Mage the Awakening game, this and the core World of Darkness blue book is all you need. I'm actually glad you mentioned the, the World of Darkness core book, because I, I feel that that's um, something that could go in the weakness category, in that this isn't actually the only book you need. The way this game was made was that there is a core World of Darkness book which lets you make a basic character and then you slap a mage template on top of it. So it was really, um, I thought it was an innovative way to design it, but you do need two books to run just about any game. Mm -hmm. As getting into the weaknesses then, that is one of them. Another is that this book has lots of information in it. And it throws it all at you with some explanation, but not quite enough. There's There are... Things there, there are terms that are brought out in how they work in story, but not how they work necessarily mechanically, or how you could use them. Yeah, like one of the main things is mage society is organized into into small groups, like in a city called Constilia, 
and usually it means there's someone who's the president who makes rules and has a council to make sure those rules are enforced. doesn't really go over why they organize like that or rules for to organize that. Fortunately, they do come out with answers to those questions in future books. So uh, that's, I feel that's why the developers left it open, uh, but I feel like in some ways they left it a little bit too open. Uh, for example, I know there was a bit of debate regarding how the uh, adamantine arrow were supposed to be treated, whereas there was one school of thought that said the adamantine arrow are basically like one big army, and if someone outranks you from anywhere in the world, uh, they can give you orders. Whereas a friend of mine said he felt like the adamantine arrow should have been treated like a samurai in that when two different adamantine arrow meet on the battlefield, they could be working for different masters and they would bow and then honorably duel it out and one of them would, would cut the other guy down, but they at the same time both following the same precepts of the adamantine arrow. So... So yeah, I felt like there was some, a lot of basic information I felt about some of the new concepts they were exploring that really wasn't covered in there. Anything yeah. to add on that? At the moment, no. Okay. <laughs> One of the issues that I had is that while votes and basic fast casting rules were very easy, I always had trouble with the extended spell casting rules. That might just be how, because of how the charts were set up, or it yeah. could just be how my brain processing things. No, but... I will join you in on the way the charts are laid out. It is there. It is readable. But unless you're going in with the right mindset, it can kind of just go in and glance off your brain. You're just like, how does this work again? Yeah, I'm glad you guys mentioned that because they made the magic really customizable. But because of that, it also came off as really dense to me. Yes. Like there's like a solid... 10 pages of basic magic rules and how you can tweak them and make them work and stuff. And yep. because it's so dense, there's a lot of things in there that kind of get overlooked and lost. Yes. And that also brings up the question of what other types of magic spells are there? Now, fortunately, we have about 10 years worth of publishing history, yes. and each book has at least 5 to 10 new spells, new votes, as well as one book that's the principles of magic. So they answer all of these questions, but not in the main book. Threats, which is unusual, but this is a SWAT. Threats. It could be daunting for a new storyteller. It might be easier to do a game like Requiem, which is perhaps not as complex as this game. Actually, I feel it could be daunting for a player, too, because uh, one of the things about this game is that uh, I've often felt that Vampire had an advantage in that if you've seen a Vampire movie... They pretty much you can pretty much roll right into a vampire game and know more or less what's going on. Whereas in this game, there's very few TV shows and movies that I feel have the same genre as this. I think Dresden Files is one of them, and maybe Harry Potter-ish, although it's a little less lighthearted than that. So yeah, I feel like people don't necessarily have as many examples available to them as to what they should be doing in this kind of game. Yeah, um, I'm going to echo some of those thoughts. In a lot of the other White Wolf games that came out, most powers are structured. They're nowhere near as freeform as magic and mages. It's You have this ability at this level and it does this, as opposed to getting a single level of magic in this, which can do a whole bunch of things. Yeah. It's, uh, for example, in, in if you've uh, uh, got the fifth level of a discipline in Vampire, you can do five things. Yes. And in this one, if you've got the fifth level dot, you can do everything that's available to that sphere of magic or yeah. arcana which can be a massive pile of things. I actually would take people who had played or who 
start off at like they, they, a lot of people would try to rush themselves and give themselves like a high level of magic, you know, because that's where all the cool stuff is. Yes. But I feel like they were actually doing themselves a disservice because if you don't actually play through the lower levels of magic, I feel like you you skip over those things mentally and aren't aware of what you can do at lower levels. Some of which can be very useful. Yeah. It's also a threat to the GM because we all know that no plot survives first contact with the players. Especially when it comes to mages. Yes, because when you can literally rewrite the rules of reality, plot sometimes goes slightly sideways. Slightly, honey. I had a really hard time the very first time I started running mage because if uh, I, I have a tendency to borrow plots from other books and sources. And I find that a lot of plots that are used in popular literature and movies are uh, you need to find a you need to deliver package A to point B. I mean, look at Lord of the Rings for example, right? The whole plot is moving that stupid ring across country to get it into a volcano. And if you had a mage with like teleportation magic, that plot's over in like five minutes. And a lot of things like that are the case where it's it's hard for as a as a storyteller to wrap your head around how do I deal with a situation where, as I was always describing it. Uh, players can basically make their own wishes. And I found that it required a big change of thinking on my part. So what I had to do was say, I have to assume that any plot I throw at the players, they can accomplish, especially because we were playing in the LARP form where we had a lot of people, and so there, all the magic powers were pretty much covered by somebody. And so, so I said to myself, the real challenge here isn't can they do something, but should they do something? I had to start looking at things from the perspective of making something a moral decision, or where two or more of these orders or different people would disagree with how they should be handling the situation. And I felt that's where the real conflict came from, but it did require a big uh, paradigm shift in my thinking as a storyteller. Yes. And as a player, sometimes you're just not interested in the sort of plots Mage lets you play. I know... Usually when I play mage, I play it because I want to use magic. And a lot of times it can devolve into a very political, very moral game. And it's just like, I don't care. Let me throw my fireballs. Just let me throw my fireballs. <laughs> Moving on to opportunities. This is a sandbox game. You can literally do anything. Do you want a pulp occult adventure? Call the Mysterium. Political intrigue? The Silver Ladder has you covered. Well, Silver Ladder and everyone has you covered. Yeah. Guns and violence? Call forth the Arrow and the Guardians. Do you want steampunk? I have seen a steampunk free counselor character with a time and space traveling ship. I think we know the same character there. Yeah. Any other threats? You mean opportunities? Opp right? Any other opportunities? Uh... Oh, actually, yeah, I would say something. Uh, because Mage uh, tends to be a little bit broader in terms of its type of, um, I'm not going to say villains, but like antagonist type creatures that you can come up with, I find part of the fun is that when players first spot something, the, the issue is, the, the question is, what is that thing? Like, what are we looking at here? And in Vampire, your opponents are basically vampires. There really isn't a whole bunch of other bad guys out there. But in Mage, you're, you're look, you can be looking at ghosts or like cryptids or uh, i i always liked the the genius loci which i don't feel gets enough play where it's like an intelligent place and that's right in the back of the, the main book this is the book we're talking about today and it's uh, when players encounter something like that you know there's that that whole sense of wonder like what on earth are we are we dealing with here and i found that the mage was really good for throwing just bizarre mysteries at people <laughs> yep as for myself uh, for an opportunity for this, 
is the ability to develop your own magical style. Yes, magic is codified into the 10 arcana and what they can do, but how you approach that magic, what you do to cast your spells, that is entirely up to you. If you want to play a computer hacker who hacks the planet, you can. Uh, if you want to play someone who asks the spirits, not the spirit arcana, but spirits of things for magic, you can do that. Yeah, I feel like the, the one of the strengths of the game is that it really gives you a lot of freedom when it comes to characters. Yes. Uh, I've seen people play a really wide variety of things, some of which were a little goofy. Yeah. But you know, the, but the thing is, the game it has that sort of freedom where you can have yes. one, and, and they can even coexist in the same sort of game. So you can yeah. have one guy who is the super serious, you know, um, I'm trying to get revenge because someone killed my wife type concept, alongside someone else who's basically like an anime character in, in most ways. Yep. And they can exist in the same, not only in the same game, but working on the same problems yep. and coming up with sometimes similar solutions, sometimes very, very different solutions that still solve the plot. Yep. Actually, I'm also going to go further and say, I found a lot of the role-playing we got out of this was looking at how different characters in different orders approach the same problem. Yep. And I felt that there was a level of discussion that didn't happen in other games. I remember there was one situation where I was playing a free counselor, and there was a bunch of Guardians of the Veil, and the two of us got into a, a debate, like an honest-to-God in-game debate, about whether or not regular people should have access to magical knowledge or not. And the argument I used at the time was that the Guardians, the, the, treat, treating magic was like, the Guardians treat, tend to treat magic like having a gun. And their logic was that nobody should have a gun. How very Canadian. Right. And I, and I said, right, but we know that people are going to awaken and suddenly they're going to be having magical powers without ever knowing what a magical power is. So rather than claiming that guns don't exist, not teaching people how to handle guns, all I'm saying is that People should, we should be giving out information as to how to use a gun responsibly so that when someone gets that gun, they don't go around and shoot up a 7-Eleven. And the Mysterian would say, even if we put out that information on how the gun, because of a particular quirk of how magical knowledge works, it would hide itself and regular mortals would be able to access it. Yeah, that was interesting, is that the, each of the orders had, some of them were, they all had fundamentally different perspectives, yep. but some of them would be on the same page on one issue, and then have fundamentally different things yes. on a different issue. As, and the uh, Mysterium would be opposed to the idea that no one should have a gun from the Guardians, just that only people who deserve it should have guns. Yeah. And who, they, who, who deserve it should go to the Mysterium. Meanwhile, the Silver Ladder would say everyone should have access to the magic, but they're the ones who should who dictate on how that magic should be used. Yes. Right. The Silver Ladder would be like, everyone needs bazookas right now. Let's go. Just we're going to choose how you use that bazooka because <laughs> we're because we know best. And they often do. And it's true, they often do. But still, it's just like everyone needs a bazooka and an Uzi right now. <laughs> For the record, this podcast does not endorse the use of any type of guns. Use magic wands instead. Yes, they're more dangerous. Now it's the time for character cremation, where we create a gem of a character and run with it until it burns. And my idea for a character concept is the Vengeance Broker. She recently awakened, but already knows mortal law like the back of her hand, and she's getting a good grasp of awakened law and the Lex Magica. But, in spite of her magic, or perhaps at times because of it, the bad guys get away. The victims do not see justice. 
and something has to be done. She tried to take on the system once on her own, and it beat her down. She learned that it is safer for her to grant justice for other people, so that she is a few steps away from the incident. Unfortunately, everything has a price, and what she charges may be a bit too high. The character that I have is a member of the Silver Ladder, either as a Thyrsus or an Acanthus, with a heavy emphasis on spirit and fate magic, as well as many dots and allies. Mundanely, she can call on these abilities to make someone's life miserable. Magically, she gets vengeance by calling down the appropriate spirits and having them use their influences or powers. If worse comes to worse, fate is in her back pocket for more direct results. Adam, Dave, how would you use this character in your game? I personally would use her as a deuteragonist, not an antagonist, not a protagonist, someone for the characters to interact with and on to choose whether they believe her methods of justice are just or not, and seeing where they go with that. I like side characters where they're sympathetic, but their methods aren't necessarily nice. I mean, you could be the type of character where it's like, no, what she's doing is wrong, you have to stop her. Or, I know a lot of people who play characters where it's just like, yes, what she's doing is right, I'm going to assist her as best I can. You know, it's interesting, you also envision her as sort of an NPC type character. I, I saw this person, and immediately the thing that came to my mind was a request giver. Whereas, like, people come up to her asking her for something, and she's like, okay, well, I'd be willing to help you out, but I need you to do this particular thing for me. And then you go into the whole spiel of, like, you know, here's this particular guy who, like, is looking for revenge for this particular thing, and she basically puts it on the players to go out and get that kind of uh, revenge in exchange for her doing something on their behalf. If I can just jump off of that, you just gave me an amazing idea. Go to hell. This vengeance broker is a teacher and trainer in the Adamantine era. Hmm. She gives her students these scenarios in which they allow her, in which she says, I believe this person deserves this sort of justice. Then she sees what her pupils do and teaches them on how that reflects upon the methods of the Adamantine era and what they and what, what not only what they did, but how they did it. That's, That's a good, good one. Right. Oh. Sorry, that just came... Sorry, the moment your suggestion came out, it's just like, oh, this is a character from Playscape Torment. <laughs> Boom! You know what? As soon as you, you started breaking that down, I immediately started thinking of the other order. And now I'm thinking similar idea, but as a uh, Guardian of the Veil. Oh, that'd be perfect. Because the Guardians of the Veil are always big on, like, you know, should you or should you not kill this guy? And I like the idea where if the, the, the character point the person at this guy, we're deserving of something, maybe it's death, but maybe it's something else, and if the player looks at the situation and says, you know, this guy, he's done something awful, but he's not, you know, it wouldn't be right to shoot him down, suddenly, now it's it's up to them to try and, like, come up with some sort of, like, you know, just karma for the guy. Hmm. I'd add to that, that she would also have the character's experience, whatever justice the NPC does. Ah, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. That's interesting. It's kind of like that uh, Ghost Rider penance gaze thing, right? Where like, they feel like all the, the bad crap they've done to somebody else. Yep. Alright, so that is basically the podcast for this week. Hopefully we'll be having a few more of these. Ten years of history. Hopefully we have a few things to talk about. Oh, I'm sure we can press it down to yes, too. We'll be good. In the meantime... 
Please like us on Facebook, follow us on Facebook, and if you need to get in contact with us, our email address is bluebook.mage at gmail.com. Don't forget everyone, you're a mage. You can do anything. Adam, try saying something else, please. Something else? Something else, please.